The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Artistic Director of the Atlantic Theatre Company here in New York, Neil Pepe. Neil, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice you to be have, here. You have a hit show running on Broadway called Spring Awakening, which we certainly want to spend some time talking about. But I think for our listeners, maybe explain first... What exactly is the Atlantic Theater Company? It has different uh, different parts to it, a, yes, it a teaching element and a, and a producing element and all that. And just tell us a little bit about, about what you folks do. Okay. The Atlantic Theater Company is an ensemble-based company here in New York City, off-Broadway. And uh, it was founded by William H. Macy and David Mammon in 1985. It grew out of a series of workshops at New York University from 1983 to 85, in which uh, William H. Macy and David Mamet, William H. Macy, the actor, and David Mamet, of course, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of such plays as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, they taught this sort of technique of acting, which they call practical aesthetics. And from that group, um, during that two-year period, they they took them out to the Goodman Theater, which at that time, David Mamet was the associate artistic director when Gregory Mosher was the artistic director. When they were done with their studies, this group of students were taken to the Goodman to intern for a year. And then at the end of that time at the Goodman, uh, Mamet and Macy said, uh, we don't feel we have anything left to teach you. The best thing for you to do is is not wait around to get cast, but create your own company and uh, and do the theater that, uh, that you want to do and, and create your own work, which was sort of part of the philosophy that we're based on. So since that time, as an ensemble, similar to ensembles like Steppenwolf and very much based in a lot of the philosophies that came out of the Moscow Art Theater and the group theater, uh, we continue to utilize this sort of technique and approach to not only acting and producing plays, but also approach to how we produce theater. Uh, we've applied that <clears throat> as we've kind of evolved as a theater company. In uh, 1988, we had our first hit, which was at Lincoln Center, a play called Boy's Life by Howard Corder. And then in 1991, we got our own theater, which is at on 336 West 20th Street, a beautiful uh, restored parish house, 165-seat theater. And since that time, we've been producing fairly consistently off-Broadway and once in a while moving a show or two to Broadway. Now, you talk about William H. Macy and uh, <clears throat> David Mamet developing this technique called practical aesthetics. Yeah. What does that mean? What is practical aesthetics? It's a technique. I think when they were when they were sort of coming of age in the theater, Mamet started out as an actor and actually studied with Sanford Meisner. And, uh, and the more that he was studying, I, I think he felt like... He, he sort of sensed a lack of um, practical a practical technique in which an actor was given a set of tools to apply to telling the story of a play. So what he did is he essentially took many of his influences, um, mainly Sanford Meisner, the later writings of Stanislavski, some of the Stoic philosophers, certainly some of Joseph Campbell's idea of myth and storytelling in society, and he essentially condense them into a technique with many of his thoughts based on his experiences in entertainment and the theater to create a, a way of approaching theater that's, that's all about serving the story of the play. Some people view it as a little bit of a of reaction to a time when the method was sort of prevailing and which was in some ways with a lot of the exercises I think to Mamet felt sort of abstracted and less practical in terms of how you approach a play. So 
they developed this technique, which is ba- very action-oriented and very much about objective and through lines, meaning if you break down the story of what an actual story is in a play and what is my job as an actor, what is my job as a director to serve that story of the play, that, in very general terms, is what we do at The Atlantic. It's all about the play and all about that all elements, even including the administrative elements, are about serving the story of the play. That's a sort of distilled version of what we do. You are a producing company and you are an acting school. How does the school influence the company and vice versa? It's always been a a tremendous benefit and sort of um, treat in some ways to have the school. Um, When Mammon and Macy turned the company over to us and said, basically said, produce your own work in 85, about a year and a half later, we then also took over the school. And so many of the company, many of our our ongoing ensemble members are graduates of the school. But then in addition, it was the relationship was not only one that was sort of uh, artistic, but it was also financial. Um, we, We would teach the classes. The school would make a certain amount of money. And sometimes that would be turned over to help us produce the shows. And then uh, it was a great resource. It was a great resource not only, I mean, many of our, as I said, many of our younger company members have come out of the school. In fact, I was originally a student in the summer program in 1985, um, uh, sorry, in 19, summer of 1987. And, uh, and so it's been a great relationship. And both of them, I have to say, have developed hugely. This Just, just to be clear, w- what the school is, um, we now call it the Atlantic Acting School, and it's a full studio program out of New York University's undergraduate Tisch School of the Arts. It's a three-year program. We also run a professional program and a part-time program. And it, uh, we've also just started a program in Los Angeles, which started in January and is thriving. And many of our members, including Mamet and Macy and Felicity Huffman, are teaching out there now. So it's been this incredible um, thing, which is not only sort of continuing the tradition of how we approach theater, but also feeding what we do artistically on the off-Broadway side. Now, you alluded to it in there. You said you started as a student at the school, but but can you tell us you know, exactly when did you come into it? And f- since the company began in 85 and by 92, you're the artistic director, how did that come to pass? Well, because we're an ensemble-based company, and especially at that time when it was earlier on in our years and we were all a bunch of college students who had just gotten out, and we were when the company started, we were pretty much doing everything. I had a friend um, who was then the artistic director named Clark Gregg, who was one of the founding members, and we were actually parking cars together at a place called the Water Club on the East River. And uh, he told me about that he had been uh, working with Mammon and studying with Mammon, and I had known uh, Felicity Huffman. I actually went to high school, dated her for a little while in high school, and so I'd lost track of her. He said, oh, yeah, Felicity's involved with the theater company, too. So I said, gosh, I, I love Mammon, and I love Macy. I knew of his work. Can I help out? So so and we I should say, just yeah. interrupted that time. Certainly, David Mamet was extremely well known. William H Macy. Certainly, this was years before things like Fargo. He was not as as familiar as he is today. Yeah, and it's a great point because what I what I've always found extraordinary to diverge from the topic for just one second. What I've always found extraordinary about what Mamet and Macy did at that time, and also what they've done along the ways. At a time when Mamet was certainly at the top of his career, having just won the Pulitzer for Glengarry, to take a group of young college students and devote himself to them. And not only that, um, 
bring up all of these incredible people that he was working with, Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Wally Shawn, John Guare, Craig Lucas, Howard Corder, and say, come on up. I've got this great group of uh, students and essentially saying they're the future of the American theater. Come and watch them work. And and so so we did. But that was an incredible thing. Getting back to your question. I uh, so Clark invited me to help out on a on a, ben- a few benefits, and I sort of assisted here and there. Then I went out to Actors Theatre of Louisville. I was an apprentice out there for a year. Clark called me again and said, "Gosh, we need a technical director." And at and this point, you're acting. At you're... this point, I'm mainly an actor, okay. but I also happen to be a decent carpenter from my days of growing up in Vermont. <laughs> so I. Uh, he said, will you come up and build sets? And, and I said, uh, or actually, I, he said, will you come up and study? And I said, I can't afford to to uh, to uh, pay for the classes. He said, well, you can be our tech director. You can build the sets. So, of course, I got up there and spent most of my time building sets because they did something like seven plays in eight weeks. It was a great summer and a crazy summer. And I studied as much as I could in between building the sets. And, uh, and then that fall, when they did Boys Life at Lincoln Center, um, I got taken into the ensemble, which was a a great thing and sort of uh, auspicious in terms of all of the things I went on to do. When I when I became artistic director, my colleague uh, Scott Ziegler, who now runs the institute up at ART at Harvard, he had been the artistic director for three years. At that, it was basically a rotational position. We would meet as a company, and every year, if somebody wanted to run against the artistic director they would. Um, it was really a position that nobody wanted, that it was so much work and, and so much fundraising. And when I took it on in 1992 and was elected, um, I th- really thought that I'd probably only last two, maybe three years at the outset. I was, I thought this would be fun. And I, always, I was always interested in the process. I loved writers. I loved directors. And I loved the idea of bringing together exciting people. And then somehow here I am 15 years later and, uh, and really enjoying it, but I never expected it. So. Still, still in the job that nobody wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your your website, you're talking about ensemble. Your website lists roughly 40 people as ensemble members, some of the, the, probably the better-known names to our audience. Uh, Cameron Mannheim, who, of course, was on The Practice on television. Kristen Johnston, who, of course, was on Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, you've named William H. Macy, Mary Steenburgen, uh, Felicity Huffman, you named. Yeah. Are these people all active ensemble members? Not necessarily every every year, but people who are ongoing uh, members of your company? Yes, to the extent that they can be. And it's a very mm-hmm. interesting question for any ensemble that continues to evolve beyond, say, seven, eight years. And we've now been going 20. Um, they are. In, in fact, I, depending on if they're available to do shows, and a lot of my time... My sort of job as an artistic director in this position is to serve a variety of different masters. Um, first and foremost, I try to pick the best plays I can. You know, to, to our, our mission is to do great plays simply and truthfully, util- utilizing an artistic ensemble. So, but second to the uh, picking great plays is about utilizing that artistic ensemble. So, I'm always kind of calling around, seeing who's available, seeing who might be interested, and balancing that <clears throat> with the choice of plays that we have. And sometimes it matches up beautifully, and we cast plays, depending on the availability of people, that we can have lots of company members in plays, and sometimes we have less amount of company members, and a few times we have no company members. So <clears throat> it's an ongoing challenge, but also it's an incredible, it's a very exciting resource to have a company of artists who are committed to um to the ideal of what we're trying to do as a theater company. So 
the short answer is I do the best I can with all of these wonderful people in the acting ensemble. Some people are more available than others, and uh, but it's always a great thing, and they're incredibly supportive and a wonderful resource, both both artistically and they help they help in, in incredible ways with fundraising as well. And one of the ensemble members is also one of the co-founders, David Mamet. Absolutely. Uh, over the <clears throat> 20 years from roughly 1985 to 2005, you did revivals of a number of Mamet plays, but no original work. It took 20 years for David Mamet himself, the founder, to write an original play to be done at Atlantic. Which was Romance. Right. Yeah, which, which I directed about, about a year and a half ago, I guess. Yeah. It, it, it's not entirely true. We had done some new work by Mamet, um, but a lot of it was his shorter work, you know, mm-hmm. one-act plays and smaller stuff stuff. Um, what's the reason for that? Well, I think, you know, again, as I was saying before, when, when he start, founded the company, he was uh, really, you know, he's he's one of the, as, as we all know, he's one of the most successful and, and widely produced playwrights, uh, you know, in America. And so whenever David Mamet had a new play, um, you know, more, more than likely that play was going to Broadway. Um, now, as we've, what I'm proud of and what I think is exciting is that the company grew, and the company got bigger and bigger, and and I think is you know now regarded a, 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 a decent you know middle middle sized off Broadway force in 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 New York, and so it was kind of nice that we got to a point where Mammoth said, "Hey, here's a new play. Let's do it at the Atlantic," um, and we were able to do that. But I I understand why the years before. It wasn't necessarily the place that we were doing all of his new work because, again, he was so sought after, and uh, and Broadway is the place where where most, you know, if you're at the top of your game as a as a playwright, you'd like to be done on Broadway if people and, watch. And you. he was doing a lot of motion picture work at the same time. Absolutely, he was very busy. He's a, he's one. He, he's probably the most prolific person I've ever met. I mean, he does so many different things. Um, but uh, during all of that success, uh, he's in a remarkable way, been very, very supportive and loyal um, to all of us and to the institution of the Atlantic, which is great. Well, in talking about the repertory, the playwrights, there are certainly other playwrights who, as we look over your 20-some-odd years of production, that we see a lot. You mentioned Howard Corder, um, seen several Jez Butterworth plays. Are there Atlantic playwrights, per se? Yes. I mean, I, I... you know, I wouldn't sort of, we don't name them that way, but part of, I think it, it's also an offshoot of what our philosophy is, which is, you know, we really are interested in committing to artists and making, you know, making a commitment not only to the ensemble, but if we believe in a writer, then it's not just about believing in, oh gosh, they have one play that we think is going to be wildly successful, or it's only about the quote-unquote best play they've ever written, but that we make a commitment to that writer as an artist over their careers. So in the case of most of the writers we've worked with, we've produced two, three, maybe even four of their of their plays because we believe in their work. And I think that's a very important part of what we do in terms of all of the artists we work with is trying to commit to what it means for an artist to have a career and uh, and what it means for an artist to feel that, you know, somebody really is interested in their work, whether it's a smaller work or a larger work. So that's been a huge part of what we do and and very important. I wouldn't say that we necessarily have a... I mean, a lot of people sort of say, oh, the Atlantic, that's Mammoth's company, or that's the company that Mammoth um, founded, so they must be all Mammoth-style plays. I don't think that's the case at all, actually. It, it really comes down to 
just believing in each writer on their own terms and the, each writer's voice. And so, the, you know, the voices are as, are as wildly divergent as uh, Craig Lucas to uh, Martin McDonough to Eddie Sanchez to Jez Butterworth to David Mamet. So all different styles, but we commit to them, yeah. Well, I want to ask specifically about Martin McDonough because <laughs> it was the Atlantic production of Beauty Queen of Lenan that really introduced McDonough to the U.S. Um, in back in about 1997, 98. Correct. And how did you come to his work? And then it was an interesting experience because suddenly there were multiple productions of Martin McDonough shows. And then last year, again, you did one. Could you, can you tell us about that relationship? Yeah. It's an interesting one because uh, it was a sort of... Not Well, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. We had heard about Martin McDonough and heard what an extraordinary writer he was. And uh, <clears throat> at that time, my colleague, Hilary Hinkle, who was the managing director of the theater at that time, we had gone over. Uh, we were trying to move a production of David Mamet's Edmund. We were trying to get over to London. So we were there and we saw Beauty Queen and just loved it. And we had heard that it had been trying in various ways to come over um, to Broadway and other places. And... Essentially, we were kind of the last people standing in terms of uh, the negotiation. Gary Hines, who's the artistic director of The Druid, who directed Beauty Queen, was very particular about protecting the play, protecting that production of the play. When she came to us, I said, look, you know, ideally we'd like to have a company member in the play because that's how we work. And there was one role that we auditioned a number of company members. And at the end of the day, Gary made the argument to me saying, look, I really feel like this is best served by the original um, cast. And in, and looking it over, I, I decided, you know what, you're right. And, and at the first and foremost, it's about um, serving the play, and I felt Yet this. You were a little off your mission in choosing to do exactly. that. It was the first time that we ever did that, and uh, and it was an interesting decision to make and a hard decision to make. At the end of the day, I felt it served the play very well. Um, so, but it was also outside of that element, very much in line, you know, with what we try to do in terms of you know the playwright um, and and the story of the play. At any rate. After a long sort of uh, process, we succeeded in bringing the play over. It was the first McDonough play ever be, ever to be done in America. Um, the Cripple of Inishman was also done later that year at the Public, correct? And there was a question about which one was going to be first. And I, I don't. I think it just timed out schedule wise that we ended up coming in in the fall in the uh, January of that year. So it was very exciting. It was very exciting in terms of the who Martin was. I mean, he was a very young man and very prolific. At that time, I think he had written almost all of the plays that he's now become known for, had already at least in draft form been composed, which is kind of remarkable because I think he was only 24 or 25. Um, so it was it was kind of a wonderful you know, first step working relationship with him as well as the Druid, who's an amazing company in, in Ireland, and Gary Hines is an incredible director. Um, it was more expensive than any show we had done at that point because we brought in actors from outside the country, and so we had to work a very special deal with equity and pay everybody a lot more and house them. So we got enhancement money for that. Um, and then because it was so successful and wanted to reach a larger audience, we ended up moving it to Broadway, and it was... Uh, it was a great time. But then after all of these other productions being done under other auspices, yeah. you, you almost didn't have a chance to, to get a hold of these other shows. A year ago, Lieutenant of Inishmore was, was back with you. And yeah. How, 
And I, 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 it sort of makes sense to me in, in many ways because um, Lieutenant of Inishmore was one of – I think it's one of Martin's favorite plays as far as he's, I think, said to us. Um, it was one of those plays because it was so wild and uh, controversial that I think many commercial producers and many, even many not-for-profit producers didn't want to touch it just because it was who, you know, there's all the crazy stuff of cats blowing up and people being dismembered and everything. And they thought, how could that, that, you know, people will leave the theater in out, in outrage. And, uh, and, but the writing is so good. I mean, like most of his plays, but that play in particular has works on so many different levels that we thought, Hey, this is fantastic. Let's figure out a way to do it. Now, yet again, Martin and Wilson Milan, the director felt strongly about using a certain amount of the Irish cast. Um, so we again figured out a way and equity was very gracious in this of figuring out a way to get some of them over. And again, it was a very expensive show to do because of all the effects and because of the, um, actors from Ireland and England. Um, but it was it was great, and we had a great time. And I, it seemed appropriate that one of his, you know, for lack of a better expression, more radical plays, or one of his plays that sort of pushed the envelope, was again at at the Atlantic. Was a you know sort of riskier and and something that I thought belonged, you know, wanted to start downtown. And it was great to reunite with with Martin because again, I I feel like at the end of the day, it's all about the play. Um, for us, and it's all about the play with most good playwrights, you know. How do we make this work? Well, for our listeners who may not have seen The Lieutenant of Inishmore, an extremely bloody show, especially the second act. The, yeah. la- the laundry bills alone must have been a big budget item, <laughs> yeah. just cleaning those costumes every day. <laughs> the thing that was, sorry to interrupt, the thing that was unexpected is, yes, it was a bloody show, but at the heart of it, it was a very, very funny show. Mm. And it was, in an odd way, a love story. And I think that's what was unexpected. You know, people would say, oh, my God, it's so bloody. But then they would come in and they say, I haven't laughed that hard in in years. And it was very much based in the sort of absurdities and truth of what goes on with what was going on with violence in Ireland at the time he was writing it. And in a larger sort of more universal sense, I think Martin was asking questions about the absurdity of violence in the world right now. Well, both that show, Lieutenant Inishmore and also Beauty Queen of Lanann, very successfully transferred to Broadway. Yeah. Another show which you developed about a year ago has uh, also successfully translated, uh, transferred to Broadway, developed by, by an author that you never met because he wasn't alive. <laughs> a fellow That's who true. wrote a play back in 1891, I think, Frank I think so. Wiedekind, yep. who, uh, who wrote Spring Awakening, which you produced at Atlantic and has since transferred to the Eugene O'Neill Theater on Broadway. That's correct. How, how did that whole thing come about? Why did you decide to do that show? show and how did it start? Well, um, I knew about the show, as I think a lot of people who are interested in theater might know about this show, just because it's done a lot in high schools and colleges because it's this very radical play. It was way ahead of its time. We're and speaking it, of the original Yeah, well, the, the original the Frank Vedican yeah. play, Spring Awakening, which... Um, which, as we said, was was written in the 1890s. It was it, it's it's a play that's all about uh, sexual awakening, kids' sexual awakening in a very uh, repressive environment um, in Germany in the 1890s, and it deals with a lot of controversial things. And there's some sexual elements, and you know, some homosexual elements, lots of things that at that time were wildly controversial and are still wildly controversial. I mean, most of the original things are still in that in that. So. Um, I knew about it, and it was a show that's done a lot because of those things in high school. It was banned for 60 years. So um, Tom Hulse, who we had worked with on Cider House Rules a few years back, 
had been shepherding this project for the past two and a half to three years. And Michael Mayer, who we had also worked with on Missing Persons, a Craig Lucas play some years ago, I was friends with both of them. And they kept bringing this up and saying, look, we don't know how we want to do this or if it'll ever make it in New York, but we'd love to talk to you as the, you know, it seemed like the right place. There was a workshop done, the American Songbook series, and uh, my colleague Andy Hammingson and I went, and we thought it was quite remarkable. Um, the music by Duncan Sheik was just amazing, and there was there had been a part of us at Atlantic that had always been interested in rock and roll and the event of what music and rock and roll is about. And I certainly I grew up actually playing in a lot of bands when I first came to New York was a rock and roll guitarist. So I always had an idea that I'd love to combine the event of rock and roll and the event of theater into one because I thought wouldn't that be exciting. And this seemed to be doing that. And um, at the time that we saw it, we felt like, all right, the music's in great shape. The book still needed some work. And um, so we thought, well, why not? Let's give it a shot. The We knew it, had, it needed some work, but the artists involved were so remarkable. Um, and then we ended up bringing in Bill T. Jones to choreograph and a whole group of incredible um, collaborators that we thought this is not only <clears throat> very original and exciting, but seems to fall in line with what we at the Atlantic mission-wise want to do. We've always been kind of half downtown and half uptown. And the story was compelling. What it was saying to today's youth, seem, it seemed to you know be very timely, even though it was written in the 1890s. The fact that it's been able to find a larger audience up up uh, town is uh, is thrilling, and uh, we're just you know we'll hope, hope for the best that it can continue to uh, to run uptown. When a not for profit company <clears throat> starts working <throat> in relationship with with commercial producers, that can also kind of affect the way the company thinks about work, work it's looking to do, where its opportunities are going to be. Certainly, you've had a few experiences now. What's what's your feeling about the relationship between the Atlantic and Broadway in the future? It's an interesting question, and it comes up a lot um, because of, I think, what some people perceive to be the the dangers of the commercial arena coming into the not-for-profit arena. Um, it's been great for us on many levels, and I think at the end of the day, um, you know, we call, just for for anybody who doesn't know these the, what we're talking about, in, in the not-for-profit arena, we have this thing called enhancement money, which is when, you, uh, when you're doing a show and you need extra money, sometimes commercial producers will come in and, and give you a certain amount of money to help with the show. If the show is successful enough, they will then be given the opportunity to move that show. For the not-for-profit side, the key is that you never sway from your mission. I think uh, the danger is if, if by a commercial producer coming in, they pull you off of your mission, that doesn't make any sense. What you're ostensibly doing is getting help from an outside resource, and that's worked very, very well for us. So it's really about us being able to continue to produce the kind of work we want to produce, and if it's in collaboration with a commercial producer, sometimes that can be fantastic um, if the play demands a larger audience. In the case of Spring Awakening, Lieutenant of Inishmore and Beauty Queen of Lanon, it worked out very well because we were able to do what we wanted to do and then, knock wood, lo and behold, um, a larger audience wanted to see those plays. So we we decided to move them uptown. And in certain cases, as in our current show, The Voise Inheritance, which is a Harley Granville Barker play that David Mamet adapted that's currently running at The Atlantic, that's been a wildly successful show. It didn't seem to have, have as much interest, interest for people to move uptown, whether it was the cast size, which is quite large, I'm not sure. But 
it's been really successful for us downtown. We've extended it three times. So it really, it's about um, continuing in this economic climate that we're in to figure out how to do the work you want to do, where those resources are coming from, and partnering with people who may be able to help you do that, plus if it has a further life, um, help make that happen. Well, at, at what point in the timeline, in the continuum, so to speak, do you start getting involved with the commercial producers? Is it before you even start production at the Atlantic when you're thinking of a show? Is it when the show is in production? Is it at some point necessarily the same, like with Spring Awakening or Linan or, or Inishmore? At what point do you decide, hmm, maybe we should move this to Broadway? It changes project to project. Um, we don't pick plays in order to move them to Broadway. We just don't do it. It's not what we're about. We pick plays because we like to put on great plays, and we're going to do them in our theater. Um, in certain cases, uh, if you look at a play and you know it's going to be very, very expensive, in the case of Spring Awakening, obviously, it was our first musical, so it not only had a very large cast, I think it was 14 altogether, but it also had a band. Um, so we knew it was going to be much more expensive. In fact, it was up to that. I think it still is the most expensive show we've ever done. So we knew going in that we were going to need he need help with it. Now, Tom Hulse, who we had worked with, had been involved with it, as I said, and he held the rights, and then he and Ira Pittleman came in together to uh, provide extra enhancement money so that we could do everything we felt we needed to do artistically to realize what we realized. Um, so that was very helpful. In other cases, um, I mean, really, actually, to put a fine point on your question, it only makes sense to have an enhancement deal before you go into production because if you've already spent the money, you know, it doesn't then, – then they're just helping you get it to Broadway later, but it doesn't help you in upfront costs. So most of the time you are working out an enhancement deal whether you hold the rights or somebody else holds the rights before you get into production. But does it necessarily guarantee that it will move to Broadway if it's if it's not as successful as you had hoped? No. It, I, I mean, that, and that's the nature of producing theater in New mm -hmm. York. Um, the only reason you move to a larger venue is because you think, you know, it ha it could have a life, that people mm -hmm. want to see it, or the reviews are good enough, or sometimes the reviews aren't good enough, but you're selling out and, and nobody cares about the reviews. So it's always, uh, you know, certain producers are, are braver than others in terms of what risks they're willing to take, but it's um, it's an exciting process when you can, you know, move a show uptown. And now we sit here about a year after Spring Awakening, your, as you already said, your most expensive, your first musical, uh, and you're gearing up for another musical. Yes, we are. With a score, again, by a composer not known for writing for theater. So tell us about 10 Million Miles. I will. That is our next show uh, after The Voice of Inheritance, and it uh, gets into uh, previews in May. Um, that's a show that that is brand new. Uh, Keith Bunin has written the book. And Patty Griffin, whom some people may know, is she's a, just a wonderful singer-songwriter who's um, written all kinds of songs, not only for... She has a huge following of her own and many albums out, but she's also written for the Dixie Chicks and many other um, folk, alternative rock, country um, singers and, and performers. So it's a wonderful uh, small musical, a four-character musical about two... People are kind of at the end of their road, end of the road where they are, in, uh, sort of working class in their life, and they decide to take a road trip together. And it's sort of about their relationship and how it evolves over this road trip, and the the people that they meet along the way. And it's um, it's utilizes 
lots of Patty Griffin's songs, some of which have, have already been written and some of which she's written specifically for this work. We're in the midst of casting it right now. Um, Michael Mayer, who also directed Spring Awakening, is again directing. Tom Hulse is again helping us shepherd the play, and we had workshopped it with uh, with Tom and Michael. I guess we started workshopping it about a year and a half ago and did another workshop last summer, which went very well. And so we're again excited. It feels like the right kind of piece for us. It's uh, it's very non-traditional. Keith is a great um, playwright, you know, lots of plays off-Broadway, and we've always wanted to work with him. And it has that feel of, um, you know, kind of in, in the vein of what we like to do at the Atlantic. And so we're, we're excited about it. Would you, ex- would you explain what you mean by non-traditional? Non-traditional in the sense of uh, those of you who know musicals and know the sort of straight form of however you may take a sound of music, you know, a chorus line. It's We would call it more of a, it's, well, it's rock and roll. I suppose, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. In the case of Spring Awakening, we called that non-traditional because when they sang those songs, it's just their inner life. The show would go along and then they would turn out to the audience and in the, the show itself, the book was in, in the period that it was written in and then when they sang the songs, they would turn out and the songs were quite contemporary. Um, which was very different because I think in traditional musicals, the songs are very much part of the action. Well, in the in 10 Million Miles, I think it's kind of similar. I mean, so there are some songs here that are actually pushing the action forward and some of them that are more internalized. But it has a scrappier downtown feel to it and uh, and is kind of picked up the way Spring Awakening was. And to me, again, it sort of falls into that context of... Um, it's all about a great story. It's not about a huge production. It's not about serving the actors or serving the designers or serving the directors. It's really about this beautiful little story and how the music complements that story and um, in a sort of raw and honest fashion, which comes back to our sort of our uh, mission of play, great plays simply and truthfully. Well, as you talk about the mission, it's interesting as you're moving into musicals, Will that in any way drive potentially who might be members of the Atlantic Company in the future? Because while you have an esteemed roster, these are not people who are noted for their appearances in musicals. Well, interesting point that you bring up. Um, There are a number of current company members who are, in fact, wonderful musical theater actors. David Pitu, who's currently in the coast of Utopia, who's actually going to be uh, play Bertolt Brecht in the... Um, in Love Music. Yes, yep. exactly. And that's coming right up. I think he's going to rehearsals for that very soon. Todd Weeks, who's in the Voise Inheritance, had been in How to Succeed in Business and a bunch of other musicals on tour, and he's quite a wonderful musical theater. Matt McGrath has also done a decent amount. I think he did Hedwig. He went in and, and replaced on that. Um, so there are some, and but mm-hmm. it's a very good question. And I think depending on... We want to continue doing musicals, <clears throat> depending on the kind of musical that it is. Uh, I have a feeling that we may... You know, we're sort of... We're looking at... Uh, we'll probably look at expanding the ensemble fairly soon. And, and part of what my continuing sort of... Uh, mission is to is to define how we evolve as an ensemble because the ensemble is such an important part of what the Atlantic is I think similar to Steppenwolf and uh, and so how I utilize that ensemble how we expand that ensemble how we keep it vital how we keep it vital to the work that we do that's an important thing and I think it's an important thing that I 
continue to sort of think about in terms of how I can how I can serve that. So we may we may expand. I also wanted to ask because you you very much are talking about the company and you've you gloss past yourself very quickly in this interview. There's something interesting in that you started as a carpenter and actor. And of course, you've directed now a yeah. number of shows, and it didn't—we didn't hear you say you were trained as a director. How did you evolve into the directing with the company? Um, it's uh, it's a funny, funny thing actually. I, I I I didn't go to NYU. I went to a school called Kenyon College in Ohio, which is a great, great uh, liberal arts school. And actually, some of my colleagues, Allison Janney, who I uh, acted with, and, and Damian Young, and some other Chris Eigeman, wonderful film actor, um, all came out of uh, Kenyon College. And when I majored in drama there for my thesis, I directed a Beckett play called Crap's Last Tape, and I was acting all the time. But for some reason, my wonderful teacher, this man named Thomas Turgeon, um, suggested that I direct, and I had a great time doing it. It was very successful. And then I went on to pursue a career um, in acting, and and also, as I said, uh, rock and roll music and guitar. Um, so as I got into the company, I knew more and more as as my career was evolving that I loved acting, but I, I loved the idea of an ensemble, and I loved working with new new work and writers. So when the position became, you know, sort of up for a vote of, of they were looking for a new artistic director, and I decided that I would run, I knew at that point that I would probably have to put my acting career sort of in second position. I continued to act. Um but I knew that I was going to have to concentrate more on directing and overseeing the company and, and sort of creating projects. So at that time, I started to direct quite a bit um, and really enjoyed it and directed all kinds. And at, up to this point, it's, it's my main focus. I've directed lots of different plays by lots of different wonderful writers, including David Mamet and Harold Pinter and Howard Corder and... Uh, Jessica Goldberg, all kinds of great people. So it's been a thrill for me to <clears throat> focus on directing. I still love acting, and once in a while, if somebody asks, I had the privilege of uh, Woody Allen, who's worked at the theater, asked me to, to play a, a part in Melinda and Melinda, and, and it was just wonderful to be be able to do that. That would be my dream, to do one or two scenes in, in film or TV a year um, as an actor. But for me to act in plays, it, it's difficult to have this position and, and commit that kind of time. But I love directing, and I will continue to do a lot of it. <clears throat> We've been talking uh, about the history of the theater and the shows you've done in the past and the current season. The 2007-2008 season <clears throat> isn't far away and then beyond. What, what are you planning for next season and then down the road? Well, we did. We had planned for this season... Um, uh, a show by by the great writer Jez Butterworth. I had directed two of his plays, Mojo, back in 1997, which was a big hit for us, and another play, Night Heron, um, a few years back. So we were going to do a play of his, a world premiere called Parlor Song, this season, when Voise Inheritance ended up being such a success, we extended. And so we were, go we were going to open um, next season with Parlor Song. And then in the meantime, we have lots of other stuff under consideration, which we'll probably announce, I'm hoping, in the next two to three weeks. Um, that's all I can tell you right now, that we definitely know we're opening with that. And uh, we'll know very, very soon what the rest of the season is. So right now it's kind of a busy time for you, deciding what Very what busy. It's always, you know, for uh, probably any artistic director you talk to in town, they're all tearing their hair out right now, trying to figure out what, we're, what they're going to do and trying to announce as soon as possible to get people signed up and everything. But we're... we're we're very excited about the year we're having, and we're very excited about where we're where we're headed. 
Well, in the roughly 22-year history of the Atlantic Theater Company and your own 15 years of involvement as the artistic director, where do you see it going for the next five or ten years down the road? Is there any direction you want to take it? Well, it's a, it's, it's a great question because it's something we've been talking about a lot. Um, both Andy Hammickson, the managing director, and Mary McCann, my wife and uh, an extraordinary actress who's been in the company for a long long time as was the founding artistic director she also runs the school we've been talking a lot about how to sort of balance capitalizing on our success we've also done a big real estate deal we have a new second stage so we're trying to figure out where we want to go in terms of um i i think to answer it we want to continue to evolve as an ensemble we want we've created new venues to uh to uh produce more new plays. The second stage, which um, we produced, just produced a, a new Kate Robin play called Anon, which was fantastic. And we're going to be doing a Keith Redine play called Human Error this summer. Um, so finding new ways to uh, to serve the artists that we want to serve, finding new ways to invest in, in, the, in the ensemble, and then continuing to really balance how to fund that. Um, we are always looking to build relationships with writers we love. We're always looking to find new ways to invest in all of the artists that we love. And uh, and again, the, the financial balance question becomes a large part of it because in this day and age, with certain funding resources drying up, you're always trying to reinvent or invent new ways of, um, of coming up with funding. So uh, we're growing and we're, we're trying to continue to do exciting work. As I said, we're, um, we've opened a school in L.A., um, a lot of our members are getting into film and TV. I don't know if the theater company will do that, but certainly our members will. And in the meantime, um, we just hope to continue to produce sort of essential and exciting work. Well, the one thing we have not mentioned is your website. You can certainly Google Atlantic Theater Company, or you can go to your website, which is www.atlantictheater.org. And theater is spelled E-R on the end, just to be precise. www.atlantictheater.org. The non-theatrical way of spelling theater. I suppose so. Some people call it the American way versus the English way. Right. Some people say it's the building versus the art form. I'm not sure. I've never, never known. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have to ponder that. And on that note, Neil Pepe, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks, Neil. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.